Welcome to Lonely Cello. Welcome to the Lonely Cello Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Wright, and I am here with... Dr. Benjamin Whitcomb of University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. Looking forward Hello, to Hello, Benjamin. Um, so I'm super pleased that you, of all people, decided to uh, come and chat with me about Effortless Mastery um, because it is kind of a wild read, but it also seems full of ideas that taken with a grain of salt or not, um, could be really useful for teachers and students alike. So I say, let's just get right into it. Um, what were your initial impressions of this, of this text? Well, I like the comments you sent me about it, uh, as far as, um, it is a little bit outside of the box. It seems there are a lot of books in the world, of course, and a lot of them are just tame and a little bit maybe bland and impersonal. They've been polished to death. And then there are other books like this one that are just raw and unfiltered and from the heart. Um, I'm glad that there are both kinds of books in the world. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I guess, the longevity that he's had with this book, because I'd, I'd heard of it for a while, at least to a certain extent, proves some rhetorical effectiveness of his, of his just very direct approach. Yeah, and so for, for people who haven't read it, how would you kind of briefly sum it up, or what's the gist of this book? What are, what's like kind of the main idea? Right, it's, as far as this everyday slogans, I suppose he's from the less is more approach or the uh, we can be our own worst enemy. In putting it in the positive, the idea of approaching music, this wonderful thing of music and embracing it for what it is and ought to be, which is uh, a wonderful art, a celebration, a living thing. So the things he's trying to avoid is our inner tendencies towards perfectionism and just fear in general on all sorts of levels and anxiety that goes with it, which can lead to a lifeless experience. That's what he's trying to shake people out of. Yeah, I, I feel like the kind of the kernel at the middle of it is if we can somehow remove fear and self-loathing at the kind of center of our practice because of course we perform what we practice we get good at what we practice all of it so um a lot of people practice the fear and yeah. they get very good at it um and i think it's also important that um that people maybe a lot of cellists don't know kenny werner but he is kind of one of the, I would say, the top five living big dogs of jazz piano, right? It's like him and Brad Meldow and a bunch of guys like that. But he is known for being 
prolific in his inspiration and how like his extemporaneous playing it just seems to come from some other place. Um, and so that's kind of, it's, it's really inspiring to read that somebody who is this good at what they do dealt with these struggles, just like us, just like students, just like people at the very beginning of the journey. So I feel like there's a lot of value in that. Um, and actually moving off of that, um, the, the book seems to be very focused on jazz players and kind of what they go through um, in terms of relating it to, let's just say, string musicians. Do you feel like string readers have to be flexible in their mindset? Are there things that don't apply to them from this book? It didn't strike me that way initially. And I mean, I have to admit that uh, over the years, I've read a number of, of books for non-string players and, and to try and glean out of them what I can as a cellist. And so that even includes looking to a number of violin pedagogy books. And so in other words, violin is closer to cello than jazz piano is, but it seems like a lot of the violin books, I feel like I have to do more to bring what they're saying over to the cello. Though I will totally grant, for example, in, in your point, it is a little bit maybe curious that he didn't choose to write a book that was more broadly stated in the first place. He could have taken some of the jazz specifics, maybe not out of it, but just, for example, here's a jazz instance, and but more nearly been addressing a, a musician audience rather than making the audience be overtly jazz pianist. Yeah, so that is and he's still touring with this book and giving, uh, you know, lectures and master classes and stuff like that. And I'm curious now, what, more than 20 years later, I'm wondering if that actually has broadened. Um, but also maybe it's because he felt like he was going to write from his seat of expertise. Um, but I, I did find myself, for instance, like when he would talk about the inner monologue that of, you know, self-defeat. And he's like, I got to make this solo burn a little harder. And I'm like, I have felt this because I've been a freshman year jazz improv student being like, wow, I am terrible. This has got to burn a little harder. But um, I know that a lot of uh, new musicians who are in the classical world might be like, what is what? Uh, what does that even mean? Um, so I was hoping to talk a little bit, a little change of pace here, of actually some of the specifics in terms of things that we could put into practice from this text. Um, and the first one was how he was talking about this kind of revolutionary five-finger exercise, um, right, where the the direction of his instructor at that time was to very simply just put down one finger and then without any attachment to what was going to happen, right? You just put down the next finger. And so I was actually trying to practice from that place over the past couple of weeks. And it's actually terrifying and very vulnerability making. <laughs> and I realized that even though I'm very, like I teach from a place of like physical relaxation, mental relaxation, um, there is still, between putting finger one and finger two down, a blip of something. Um, and it's not as high as it used to be when I was an undergrad, 
but it's still there. So I was like, okay, let's actually just witness that a little bit. Um, so I suppose, what would you, if you were going to have one of your students do a, you know, a version, a cello-y version of this five finger exercise, what would the customization be? For instance, the piano, you just put your finger down and out comes a note and it's in tune. And it's very hard to make like a blemish on the front of the note when you're just putting your finger down on the piano. Whereas the cello is like surprises lurking around every corner with the bow. Um, so mm -hmm. what would you say if somebody read this book and wanted to put this into practice in their, in their cello practice, what would that look like? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because when even upon reading that the first time, it reminded me of an exercise that George Nykrug at Boston University had me do uh, in just even my second or third lesson. It was early on. And the idea for total finger independence was to uh, alternately you start by lifting lifting and dropping each finger in turn and of course when when one is lifting and dropping it's easy not to have the other fingers involved at all when one is down and two is dropping it's very easy for for first finger to do something just an extra little counter push when second lifts and so just even to stare at it and make sure that it is he would say things like just first finger sits there like a, a sack of flour and it just just dead weight and I, I suppose if I were to personalize the exercise a little bit, I'd maybe have people do it in, say, fourth position because there's that darn habit when we do exercises in first position and we're looking at our fingers, we don't want to get in the habit of having the cello neck too far away from our own. But it is, it is I think, a close parallel to uh, what Werner was going for. And it does help the fingers be independent. They need to have signals sent to them and them alone at times uh, because the other finger is doing other things or even just the ability to reduce your, the total tension in your hand by, by 5% at that moment. Over the course of a concert, that adds up enough to be uh, a deal breaker. And I think that 5% idea is really important because you mentioned at the beginning that this is a treatise against perfectionism. And so it's not that dear cellist, the first time you do this, you're going to magically become a Zen master. What you're looking is, am I moving more towards these tendencies every time I practice? Can I shave off five? Okay. Can you shave off 1%? That is a victory because all you want to do is just move the needle forward. Um, and yeah. I would say, um, depending on what level the student is and what tension level they have, I might suggest doing this with no involvement of the right hand maybe first, just to kind of have no attachment to, for instance, pitch. Because I don't know about you, but a lot of my students, as soon as their pitch goes wonky, they're like, I think, I think strangling the neck is like the best thing I can do right now. Um, um, and when I say my students, I also mean absolutely me because it is a universal experience. We all do the same thing. Um, I'm just better at noticing it early, but it absolutely is a tendency. Um, do you remember also, so 
thinking about, you know, practicing from this place of relaxation, but also um, he talks about how he couldn't, he didn't derive a lot of pleasure from listening to people who were really shredding on their instruments because like this comparison kicked in and it felt like I, I'll never get there. And so he couldn't enjoy the beauty of somebody else's playing. Um, and so he was talking about listening instead from a point of compassion um, and enjoyment. And I'm just wondering, is that something that you notice in a lot of students where it's like before they even get started dreaming they could get that good, they've already kind of smashed their expectations of themselves? I think so, totally. The Let's see, earlier you mentioned the word inspiration, which clearly is important to Werner, and it's an elusive thing to define, but there's a degree, I mean, of course, there's a degree to which what is inspiring to one person is, is not going to overlap with other people, but there's also a degree to which you can open your mind more nearly to being inspired at every turn, every opportunity, and I think part of that <clears throat> is if you are going into, let's say, a concert situation, watching somebody else play, and immediately doing that comparison of their playing to your playing, or just this kind of judgmental part of our brain that immediately wants to go on, as opposed to trying to pay more attention to the, the inspiration voice and say, wow, that was, that was surprising. Ooh, how do you do that? Or, or things like that. You can just listen a lot more for those opportunities for inspiration, which I think, I mean, in a way, what you're doing when you do that is this advice of just competing against yourself. How can I be better? But in another way, I think it's just kind of not even thinking at the time in terms of that evaluating your own playing. You're not listening to the judging part at all, really. You're just, you're just seeing what filters through the, the lens of music as art and life as art. Yeah, and also um, he gets a little bit into this kind of squishy, new agey <laughs> sort of um, stuff. And while I personally kind of relate, I think to almost all of that, I could definitely see some students like stiffening or bristling at that. But I think you could make it almost fully, I don't know if secular is the right word to use, but so for instance, sometimes if I demonstrate something and it sounds really good and my student is really struggling, I see that sense of defeat go over them. And I find it's really important to communicate to them, no, 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 we are in the same club. We are all people getting better at the cello every day. I'm a little further ahead on the path, but there are lots of people way further down that road than I am. So like, welcome to the club of people who are just doing this thing, who are struggling with this thing. So I think that can be a way 
Instead of thinking the Kenny Werner, you know, this is all part of an expression of God and I am God and I am, you know, you are God. It's like, wow, that's maybe. <laughs> I just wanted to get my F sharp better in tune. I, I don't know about God here. But I think instead when you go and you see somebody perform masterfully or or not, by the way, what if you go and you're, you know, at somebody's junior recital and they, you know, train wreck halfway through their Elgar welcome to the club because who amongst us has not been there also like just kind of treating the whole thing as like god isn't that neat we're all doing this thing um that place of benevolence i feel like is really important and it takes the pressure off of the performer in a way too if you're just there saying i'm here to receive whatever you're putting out and i'm so grateful for it yeah isn't that funny the things that we sometimes have to help to translate from student to student and that that spirituality that Werner's talking about I mean again I, I suppose it just from my perspective I've read enough different authors that talk about spiritual approach to X Y or Z in different specific terms and you kind of in in your own way translate it to what resonates with you <clears throat> and and there are definitely different students if, if there's a student for whom it rubs them wrong to kind of go to abstract or too spiritual and they respond more to concrete terms for example we make those adjustments but we're still getting at the same thing. Anyway, when you were teaching something very specific, like uh, how to shift from uh, first position to third position, I mean, by and large, we all kind of have to traverse the same way to get from here to there. But some of those broader, deeper, attitudinal issues, hurdles to get over, it, it is a fun challenge to kind of get to know each student and figure out what is going to be the thing that's going to click with them to understand what what you just said what what you were getting at and what Werner's getting at along those lines yeah um and also i love um kind of as an adjunct to that um that it also um he confronts the kind of magical thinking that talent is what drives mastery, right? So sometimes people will witness somebody playing something just absolutely shredding and they're like, wow, that could never be me because that person has some secret sauce. And mm -hmm. I think what Kenny Werner is saying is there is absolutely no secret sauce. Stop asking, are we there yet? and just really be on the journey already, right? Because I think that's probably my number one thing with students is that they, they underestimate the amount of time. They're like, wow, you played, you know, that Bach minuet number two out of Suzuki really well. And I'm like, well, I've been playing for 35, six years. And I don't think there has been a week that's gone by since I learned it that I haven't actually addressed it at some point in my practice, even if I'm playing hide and D major for an audition. So it's like you do have to take a long time to do this and you have to be patient 
with yourself. And of course, the more patient and the more meticulous you are in your practice, the faster it comes. It's like you, that what was it in the Kung Fu show, right? You have to not want the rock from the master's hand in order to be able to snatch it from the master's hand. There's something really to that. Like, stop asking, are we there yet? You'll, you'll be there. You'll know. You'll, it'll be fine. But you have to just be okay with being on the, on the journey. Um, and actually, something that's kind of related to this kind of myth of talent, there is an anecdote in the book pretty early on, and he talks about being in like a state of flow at this gig. He'd been practicing like the five finger exercises pretty much exclusively, and then he was kind of ambushed into doing a gig. Um, and he talked about how he had, he was having an experience of not doing just observing um, as he played and improvised. And he said it was the quality of it was much better than his usual, much more prefrontal cortex. Let's think really hard about this kind of stuff. And I'm wondering, do you really think that that's the case? That he really was actually just observing and like there's some other, I don't know, is it lizard brain spinal cord memory that comes <laughs> out? Um, or... Or was that actually what's happening? Because I have to say, I found a state of flow in my playing and I have felt the sense of observing, but I did feel like I was doing still. It felt simple and unhurried and unworried. But I'm just wondering, do you think that there's like another level maybe that I haven't seen yet? On the one hand, he, when he makes statements like that in the book, the whole tone has some exaggerated uh, hyperbole kind of approach that I think most readers I would imagine would take it with a grain of salt and he also sets up his own historical context with practicing with attitudes such that if he were the sort of person you know he describes himself as being where at times he was his conscious brain was very, very much in the micromanaging business of what his fingerings, fingers were doing, then those situations where the muscle memory really is, you're, you are allowing it to do what you've trained it to do really well, and it doesn't need any help from the conscious brain. Uh, if that, that feeling when it clicks, that awareness of just how little the conscious brain is actually having to do at all in order to be just seeing this a magnificent uh, dexterous display go by. I think there's a degree with which he does mean it, certainly at, at face value. But I mean, otherwise, it's funny, I have to admit the sorts of things that I like to just read an occasional article about in my spare time the things like neuroscience are always fascinating. This, here we have this thing from our own perspective. We have one personality and awareness and brain, but it's, it's these various brains built on top of each other. I mean, so <clears throat> in a situation where everything is brought to the fore because you're under that, that magic of a performance situation, and you kind of realize that there is there's what the muscles have been trained to do and there's what my conscious brain is thinking about it can definitely i imagine um 
to a number of people feel like a separation, like he's just observing on one level. Well, and the physical aspect of the brain, so this is what I studied at Hopkins, right? Neuroscience and music. Um, and I got access to all these fMRI studies, right? fMRI is the functional MRI. So it actually, people are doing things while they are in an MRI. And it was almost always done with keyboard players only because it's very hard to get a cello or a violin because you move so much that the brain, like you can't get a good picture of it. So um, huh. here's something that's really interesting. So there are parts of our brain that are physically identifiable um, that are... Uh, for instance, lit up when we are practicing and then they turn off when we are performing. And I always work with my students on the difference between practice and performing, right? They, they have to feel a little different. Performance can't feel like it ends with a question mark. Eh, was that it? No, no, no. It's a statement. You got one go. Let's just see how it goes. Um, and so when students are practicing, especially when it's something difficult, the inhibitive part of the brain lights up because it's like, you know, the floor is lava. Don't touch that note. Don't do this. Be careful with this. So you're inhibiting things and changing your behaviors, and that's totally normal. Here's what's interesting. When a student feels they are very comfortable and they have mastery, actually student isn't the right word. When a musician feels like they have mastery of, for instance, some chord changes, and they feel like they can improvise over it, the inhibit inhibiting part of the brain actually goes completely dormant. And this part of the prefrontal cortex that is uh, only lights up when you're thinking about who you are and what you stand for, it's like a little stripe right between your, your, your eyes, that lights up like a Christmas tree. But it actually only happens after very deep practice after lots of time and you just feel like you know the piece from multiple directions right you know it on the page you know it in your fingers you know it by memory you could sing it in the shower all these different areas anyway so it is all of this frame of mind stuff while even that can come off as a little woo woo and and new agey <laughs> it's actually backed up by hard science and there are parts of your brain that are better served being turned off during performance or practice. Um, and your frame of mind is kind of how you get there. Um, so yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. Excellent. Um, can I read? There is a chapter six is called fear-based practicing. And there are just a couple um, phrases that I kind of wanted to read and then get your reactions to. And also just, yeah. and just for anybody listening, um, uh, I really feel like if there were only two or three pages of this book you could read, I feel like these might be by far the most useful. So uh, his opening volley is, just as fear pollutes the environment for creativity, it also inhibits effective study. And then he goes on to say, you see, fear has ruined your practicing by rushing you through the material, rendering you unable to absorb anything. You try to cover too much ground every time you practice, barely skimming the surface of each item and then moving on. You ignore the fact that you can barely execute the material because you have no time to notice that. After all, there's so much to practice and so little time. It's frustrating. Even though you're practicing all this stuff, your playing is not improving much. Nothing is mastered. Hearing yourself play the exercise correctly once or twice, you rationalize that you have it. The only problem is you come back to it 10 minutes later and that you find you don't have it. You're practicing so many things, but nothing is sinking in and nothing you practice is surfacing when you play. 
You never stop to think that you should be playing better for all of this practice. You have a belief system rooted in fear that you're not supposed to be playing that well anyway. The results you're getting are confirming that belief. Yeah. I agree. I think those are... You asked me to look for any other similar spots in the book, but I think bang for buck wise, that's, those are very, um, very pithy pages. I'd have to say, I think that chapter 13 was maybe my other favorite, but it's, it's also rather long and, and not as concentrated. He goes a little bit kind of back to some mystical stuff a little bit, but it's got a lot of good stuff in all of chapter 13, which the name of which is the same as the book. But back to your point about about fear, I made a list of some of the things that I liked most about this book, and there was a recurring theme to a lot of them. I think the idea that we often try to get our students to do of truly slow practice, not slightly slower, but slow, how slow? Slow enough to be aware of everything that you are doing. How's my comfort level in my bow hold? How, why am I uh, tensing up my, my leg muscle here? Or I mean, just all sorts of things that if you go even at a moderate speed, you will likely miss some, if not a lot, of those pieces of information. So he, he does more than just advocate for slow practice. It's this idea of getting your ducks in a row and doing one thing at a time. So this tendency, I think, by particularly a lot of youngsters, but I don't think it's limited just to them, of wanting to move on as quickly as possible to the next piece that's seen as, as a difficult piece. and they are doing themselves such a disservice by trying to tackle something that is actually more difficult than what would benefit them the most to work on at any given moment. And then it's very often those same players who even once they get some level of mastery of this difficult piece, it still does not necessarily sound virtuosic when they play it. Whereas I've heard people take what we know to be not that technically challenging of a piece and play it with a virtuoso flair. You know, and it's so many people who aren't cellists, for example, they don't really know how difficult is any given piece. I mean, they know that the Dvorak Concerto is difficult. That, okay, they get that. And if you were to just play, we could think of some counterexample of just a, a one-note something or other, okay, that looks like something I could do. But in between, to take something like the Breval C major sonata first movement and play it with a lot of vim and vigor and flair and panache is to, I think, wow a lot of people. So this, this point he's making about when you go out on stage, you should know that piece so well that you are like the tightrope walker who does not need to take out any life insurance because he knows darn good and well he's not going to fall off that thing. So if, if everybody kind of had the attitude of being able to savor the pieces that are within their playing level now 
and play the bejeebers out of them. You know, they would get more both from a building a solid foundation technically standpoint and also from just attitudinally being able to avoid those demons. So, yeah, I think it's a great chapter. Yeah, I um I I actually one of my workshops that I've given that's gotten a lot of traction and people have felt their playing kind of invigorate afterward is it's one talking about fighting the studenty sound right people who like really it's obvious like you can see their work they've been working on this piece and yet it's not in the camp that says this is an artistic gesture this is a student laboring and really by and large succeeding but yet where is the art and the um riffing kind of on the art lingo i say you have to curate your notes Every single note. You reason, the reason why Yo-Yo Ma just blows everybody's mind is because you could pause on any note and it's been like polished. And he's decided, does this note taper at the end? Does it join to the next one? Does my bow come off the string? There's no surprises to him. And the studenty sound is normally because you just have a variety pack of intent, right? Oh, whatever <laughs> happens, you know, the bow kind of happens to you. So I really, um, I love the fact that his this book does have a lot of kind of either mystical or spiritual stuff, but the foundation is the same as every rusty, crusty, old school teacher, and that is you just have to put in the time. And you'll get there faster if you put in the time in a kind of forgiving... Uh, it's funny, it's not no expectations, but the expectations have to be reasonable and appropriate in order to just yeah. kind of make the... Um, make the progress yeah let's see here i've got oh um so i i wrote here page 41 why do we feel bad when we sound bad yeah yeah that's Along the similar lines, isn't it, as far as what people's expectations are with what they're trying to accomplish when they have a, an instrument in their hands and they're allowing that out of that plan, play, judge loop, that judge part is so loud and uh, it does not have a specific way to lead systematically, you know, proactively into the plan phase and then the play phase. They, they don't take enough of the time to realize what it is that's causing the sounds that they don't like versus the sounds that they do like. But otherwise, that feeling trying to tie your self-worth to what you sound like at any given moment, I mean, that's definitely another one of those things. Anybody who is in that boat definitely should read this book I and mean, even if they don't even if they can't relate a whole lot to the rest of of his journey as to how he got to these conclusions he comes back to that point so many times and in so many different ways uh, hopefully it would help to jar them out of that habit of thinking habits are so uh, they can be so ingrained and so hard to shake loose. Um, so maybe a, 
very, again, extreme, raw book like this will be exactly what it takes for some people to actually go, no, I'm going to stop just talking about changing my approach. I really am going to do it. Yeah, and I suppose as we kind of wrap this up, I always counsel students who are very obviously, you know, halfway through a lesson and you can just see that like the piece is pushing back on them really hard and it's making them feel bad that we do need to sort of thread the needle here because part of the reason you feel bad comes from the place that needs to be active and that is a place where you assess and you strive and you want this thing. And that is not anything I would ever want them to get rid of. The thing that we need to get rid of is the absurd idea that you would judge yourself as lesser for having these struggles. And so the thing that really helped me is taking hockey classes, taking ice skating classes as an adult, because kids, they tend to not do internalize it so much. I mean, they, they, they can, but a lot of times kids are like, yeah, man, my G scale is perfect. And I'm like, wow, I don't think a single one of those notes was in the key of G, but good on you for like just barreling through it. Right. So kids are used to falling down. Everything is hard for them, right? Riding a bicycle. And then the next day long division. And then, you know, don't throw things at your sister. It's like, everything is, is a struggle. And so we get really, conditioned to the idea that struggle is some sort of frailty as you get older because we're rewarded for expertise. Rightly so, by the way. Fantastic. We should keep trying to be experts. But I think losing touch with the idea that hard things are hard and therefore there is no shortcut at all. I always just say the long road is the shortcut. Just take it the once. It's going to be long but you won't have to double back and like retool your approach, retool your physiology. Things, by the way, that I've had to do myself. At 21, I had to retool my entire physical approach after I was winning concerto competitions. That was fun, fun in quotation marks. Um, but it was important. And so I think the sooner people get on board with even skimming the cream off the top of this book, the ideas behind it and other texts like it, I think, I think the, especially the string community could really benefit from that, right? Because we are a community of achievers and high, high aptitude, high intelligence, and that can be a, glor a glorious thing, but it can also turn into a knife that we sharpen and then we use to hurt ourselves with yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I, I, if I can jump in, I wish I could remember I'm, I'm, my brain is searching for who said it. Uh, as I'd, I'd love to give them credit for it, but I remember in a conversation someone saying that to one of the things that can help us succeed most in music is when we learn to enjoy the process of practicing. And I think that's, Werner doesn't say it in those words, but he does talk about um, anybody can do this and this attitude of uh, not tearing yourself down. Um, it's, it's one of those things that if, if we could have a benediction for 
for all musicians everywhere if they can find a way to enjoy that process so that the long journey doesn't seem at all dreadful or boring, but it is it is our it is our yoga in a way. It is it is peaceful. It is uh, this disciplined, rewarding course that we're taking on purpose, and and the, not just where we're going is worth getting there, but even the very process of following that path is an enjoyable one. I think that's great. I think I might uh, ping your email later, and we're going to come up with a benediction, <laughs> like Excellent. right, because right, the Buddhist, the uh, may all sentient beings, right, be free of suffering and the root of suffering. I think that that would be a fantastic thing, actually, to come up with. Um, so we're at the end of our chat, and um, I wanted to make sure that anybody listening who wants to know more about you or enjoys your approach knows um, about your books and how to get in contact with you. And then you also have a podcast. So would you, uh, would you let them know, hip them to that? <laughs> well, why, thank you very much. I have uh, half a dozen books that are available through Winger Jones on uh, practicing string instruments and then a couple on, on devising fingerings, one for cello and one for bass. And then my other books are just self-published through Author House, and three of them, one for each violin, viola, and cello, are playing chords for those instruments. I think thinking chordally can help us a lot in, in a number of ways. And then one of them is just a very cello nerdy guide to practicing all of the popper etudes. Uh, but otherwise, I've got a, a YouTube channel with some cello videos on there, and then this most recent cello chat is being uh, run through my Facebook page as a Facebook Live thing. But otherwise, I suppose the easiest way to get a hold of me is just my name, BenjaminWhitcomb.com. Is, uh, fortunately, that website name wasn't taken. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you. And uh, I'm sure we'll chat soon. Well, thanks so much, Emily. That pleasure's been mine. So that's our episode. And I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or requests, uh, you can go ahead and email me, contact at emilywright.net. Uh, you can always visit the blog, uh, emilywright.net, and there's a contact form there. And then you can find me on Twitter, emilycello. And Instagram is Emily Wright Cello. Thank you so much. See you next time.